Did you get to play with a chainsaw? <laughs> I have one, but the tree that fell was so thick that mine doesn't have a long enough blade. So I didn't get to use mine this time around. But uh, yeah, I have gotten to use mine quite a bit before. And uh, it's always fun playing with a chainsaw. Awesome. Speaking of playing with things, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird transition. Yeah, where are you going with this one, buddy? Be careful. <laughs> listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Gregos81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on rfgeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. In our grand 2021 return, Rich and I will take a look at a trio of Disney NES games developed and published by Capcom. Join us as we discuss DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and The Little Mermaid. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at rfgplaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to rfgeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now on with the playcast. Her hair is hollow gold, her lips sweet surprise. Her hands are never cold. She's got Betty Day beside. She'll turn her music on. As New York snow, she got Betty Davis eyes, and she tease you, she'll unease you. How the better just to please you? She's precocious, and she knows just what it takes to make a pro blush. She got. And she knows just what it takes to make it pro-blush 
So I did some amateur plumbing today related to the blizzard we had here in Texas. <sighs> yeah, I heard about that. You feel me that you had some frozen <laughs> pipes? Blizzard, Austin, Texas, those two things don't really match up. Yeah, I mean, the polar vortex or whatever it was called hit us pretty hard. And it was really bizarre, especially for me, having moved from New Jersey specifically to get away from snow. That, Like the climate being the number one reason we moved from New Jersey to Texas. And what's kind of funny is there's, I guess there's a conception that it never snows in Texas, but we've been here for going on six years and it has snowed a few times, you know. Most of the time it's just a little dusting and it's really cute. Everybody, oh, it's snowing. Like it doesn't even stick to the roads and it's just fun and and the kids love it and everything. But this was actually a really, really bad storm. There was almost a foot of snow in some areas, and we just don't have the infrastructure for it, and no plows or nobody even owns snow shovels, you know? My wife and I still have our ice scrapers in our cars because you need those from time to time if there's frost on the windows, but we don't own a snow shovel, and it was just a really interesting week. My wife was off of her job and my place of business was closed for the entire week. So no work and a few days we didn't have water, but we fared better than most people because we never lost electricity. So I was very, very grateful for that. They actually turned off the water for a few days and we didn't have any blown up pipes, which is very good. A lot of people had problems with their plumbing related to the pipes freezing, which is really bad. My heart goes out to anybody who had those kind of problems. Not to mention, my heart goes out to people who died of hypothermia. Like, let's not make light of this. Like, it was really, really tragic for a lot of families. So we fared very well. I want to make that very clear. I'm grateful for the relatively painless week my wife and I had. However, when everything started getting back to normal, my toilets were acting funky, both of them. The first one, the master uh -oh. toilet, just overflowed out of the tank, which it's not supposed to do. Even in case of a failure, there's an overflow valve inside the toilet, but it still overflowed. I'm learning a lot about toilets and plumbing in the past couple of days. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've uh, changed out all of the <laughs> hardware in all of my toilets since I've been in this house. I got our building management company to send a do a work order and send a handyman out he fixed the toilets in a sense that they're not overflowing anymore but both toilets had the weakest flushes one wasn't even flushing at all and then he told me when he was done with our guest bathroom i guess you could say he said oh i had to unhook your bidet because i couldn't get it to stop leaking and i was like dude what the hell like then that toilet like wasn't flushing right so i had i had to go in and make all these adjustments to the, you know, the flapper chain to make the toilet flush right. And then I had to unhook and rehook my bidet the right way so it wouldn't leak. And it's like, maybe I should be a plumber, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can do some minor things, but no heavy work. I can't do any of the pipes or anything like that. So I would be uh, pretty much a half-ass plumber in that regard. But um, it's crazy, man, that you guys had a foot of snow. We have not had snow other than a few dustings all year. All we have had is ice. So during that same storm, 
we had a ton of ice, trees falling everywhere. I had one fall in my backyard that just barely missed our outbuilding. It missed our pool, missed my kids' trampoline, but it fell right on top of my stone fire pit that I had built. And so that's crushed and I have to uh, repair that. But uh, I finally just got to finishing up cutting up that tree today. My neighbor who lives beside of me, the one that listens to the show, actually, he had a tree fall and I had one fall. He's got a really good chainsaw. And so I helped him out. He helped me out. And we uh, got that done this weekend. So uh, my back's a little sore, but we made it through it pretty much unscathed. Did you get to play with a chainsaw? <laughs> I have one, but the tree that fell was so thick that mine doesn't have a long enough blade. So I didn't get to use mine this time around. But uh, yeah, I have gotten to use mine quite a bit before. And uh, it's always fun playing with a chainsaw. Awesome. Speaking of playing with things, um, <laughs> that's a weird transition. Yeah, where are you going with this one, buddy? Be careful. <laughs> So you said a few interesting things just a minute ago. One was that you had a bidet. And I'm not saying this to pick on you, Mm -hmm. but my wife and I are going through a bathroom remodel right now. And I was considering one for us. You know, a lot of the toilets don't have that feature built in, but you can buy these external mechanisms. So I was wondering, what do you have and uh, do you like it? Yeah. So a lot of people bought bidets in response to COVID because toilet Mm -hmm. paper was so hard to find. I actually had bought mine a few years before COVID, but I never installed it. I had the intention to to install it and just kind of threw it in a closet. And I only installed it probably about six or eight months ago. It's the kind where you kind of bolt it underneath the toilet seat. Like you can just patch it into an existing toilet. There's no additional plumbing needed or whatever. There's just a a kind of a T-joint with the hose that goes to the bidet and that's basically it. It's very yeah, to your easy water to supply, install. right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, gotcha. Very easy to install unless you're the handyman that my building management sent because <laughs> he didn't know to use Teflon tape and it was leaking all over the place. So uh <laughs> Anyway, you got to use Teflon tape. You wrap it the opposite way that's exactly of the way you're right. turning it on. Yeah. Yep, yep. But I actually love it. And that's why when the guy told me, oh, I, I bypassed your bidet, I was like, I didn't say it to him, but I was like, well, I got to fix that once you leave. You know what I mean? Because once you use one, you won't want to go back. When you realize, I don't know how to explain this without getting too graphic. Well, there's a commercial that I hear on a lot of podcasts because there's some of these bidet companies that advertise on podcasts very commonly. And one of them says, like, if there was a piece of shit on your arm, would you just rub it with a dry piece of paper? (laughs) And it's like, no, you would wash it off, you know. So that's kind of the principle behind a bidet. And it does save toilet paper. You might want to use a little bit to dry off when you're done. Um, Sure. But that's about it. I know there's it may be kind of weird or funny to have something spraying water on your ass, but <laughs> when, once you do, once you do it a couple times, get used to it, you'll wonder how you lived without it. I'm all in, man. So if you have a product line that you suggest, or if any of our listeners have a product line they suggest, please let me know for this new bathroom. They just installed the new toilet, and so yeah, I'm going to install that water line. Nice. 
Yeah. I just bought a really cheap one off Amazon. Now the prices have gone up since yeah. the demand has gone up, but I, you know, I just bought a cheap Amazon one and it works fine. Oh, some people say, oh, you should get one where you tap into the hot water line. I think that's overkill. I, mm. I, and I'm very averse to cold water. Like I take hot, hot showers. So I was wondering like, oh, is this cold water going to really sting or whatever? But it, the cold water is fine. Trust me. I don't even know how you tap into a hot water line because usually you only have one line running to the toilet. And it's yeah, cold exactly. Water. I think you have to go from the sink or something. Like it gets way more complicated. So, jeez, oh, like, yeah, no forget thanks. that. Yeah, hey, fuck this podcast business, man. Let's start a plumbing company. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we've been talking about water and shit on our ass and everything else. So, speaking of asses. Let's talk about mistakes our asshole friends pointed out, Sean. I got a weird one, and it's not from a previous episode. It's from a long time ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So it this is the kind of thing, it's a mistake I know we made at the time, and I just kind of let it go. But then recently we had a conversation about how we make our lists that we come up with. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation about whitewashing and how one of our lists was criticized in a very fair and constructive way for being whitewashed and we kind of pushed back on that and I realized after simmering on that conversation that I had to come back and correct this mistake that we made a long time ago. So once upon a time we talked about a song called Easy Lover and we attributed that song to Phil Collins. Now it's very true that Phil Collins performed on that song, but we gave the ultimate short shrift to Philip Bailey, yes, who is a legend in the music industry. Mm -hmm. He was in Earth, Wind & Fire. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the song Easy Lover was on his album, Chinese Wall, from 1984. So I just want to correct that mistake. You know, it may be a common thing if you have just heard the song a million times and not realized it, but... Easy Lover is a collaboration between Philip Bailey featuring Phil Collins from Philip Bailey's album, which, by the way, is an awesome album front to back. I've been listening to it a lot lately, actually. It's really good. There's a lot of like electro, like throwback, really good 80s like stuff in there. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a great album. And I just wanted to correct the record on that one. Awesome, man. Well, I have something that's not really a correction, but more of a confirmation. I had mentioned on the last show, we were talking about Land of the Lost and Sleestacks. And I said that Bill Lambeer, who played center for the Detroit Pistons, was actually a Sleestack at one time on the original show. And I am confirming that. I always thought it might be like an urban legend, like that Marilyn Manson was that kid off of the Wonder Years. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yeah. <I do. laughs> what was his name? Like Josh Sorvino or something like that? Yeah. I yeah. believe it was. Yeah. But yes, Bill Lambeer was a stack. In relation to video gaming, Bill Lambeer has a game on the Super Nintendo known as Bill Lambeer's Combat Basketball. I don't know if you've ever played that oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, yep, just a little confirmation there. And then, Sean, you had mentioned on the last show, and we talked about this before the call, that Soft Sales Tainted Love was actually a cover. 
And when I heard you say that, I could not put that in my mind that that was an older song originally done by someone else. But I do remember that the song Tainted Love shifts into Baby, Where Did Our Love Go, which is an older song. Mm -hmm. But just to confirm what you said, which is actually not a correction this time either, but (laughs) um, Tainted Love was an original song done by a lady named Gloria Jones. So, uh, yeah. Learn something every time we do this podcast. And uh, once again, man, great pick on that. But that's all the, I guess, confirmations, not really corrections on my end this time. But uh, it's always good that when we question something that we can give updates to our listeners and verify some of the information that we pass out. So speaking of music, Sean, you want to get into the concert cast? Yeah. So for the concert cast this time, you came up with a great suggestion. In the time of the COVID pandemic, unfortunately, this is a bittersweet topic, but we're going to reminisce on some of our favorite shows that we've been to and formulate a top five list for each of us. So this was a challenge. I could come up with top five shows of 2019 that I went to, you know, especially living in Austin. I, before COVID, I was going to dozens of shows every year and I've had the privilege of, you know, really, man, I've seen all my favorite bands. There's very few bands that I love that I haven't seen live, which isn't just awesome. You know, living near New York City before I moved here and now living in Austin Mm -hmm. uh, until the pandemic started. I was just, you know, a live music connoisseur. So it was not easy to narrow it down to five. Definitely have some honorable mentions. (laughs) Yeah. But this should be a, a really fun list. So, I guess we can get it started. I will give you my number five. 
So I was thinking back to when I was a, a youngster, and I've talked about this a lot, that I grew up in the New Jersey pop punk scene in the late 90s, and there were so many shows I went to back then, but there was one that kind of sprung to mind when I was thinking about this. There was a band called Digger. They were really a great band, and I would highly recommend people check them out. All their albums are on Spotify. They have this album called Power Bait. If you like Weezer and that kind of indie punk rock stuff, you would really like Digger, and I would recommend starting with the album Power Bait. So you would go to these punk shows that people would put on in like firehouses or American Legion halls. And they would just get like six or seven or eight bands to play and you would pay $2 or maybe it was $1 with a can of food. They would do that a lot. Like you would get a dollar discount off the door if you brought a can of food for donation. So all these memories I have of all these shows. But one in particular was I saw Digger and a bunch of other bands at the Booten Elks Lodge, I believe it was in New Jersey. Okay. Shout out to Booten. <laughs> and uh, I just remember, and I still have this picture. I really should scan it and put it online. I was just a teenager and this guy, his name is Chris Benner from Digger. He's, he was probably in his early 20s. He was probably only a couple of years older than me at the time. You know, after they played, I went up and talked to him and he was just super nice. And I was just like, hey, will you take a picture with me? And he was like, hey, yeah, man, let's like, here, you want to hold my guitar? And he like handed me one of his guitars and he grabbed another one of his guitars and we did this like pose. And he was just so nice, just really kind to me. And as just a, a nervous like teenager and, you know, he's just in this like local punk band from Pennsylvania, but I love them so much even to this day. That was just one of my like favorite memories from one of those shows from that era of my teenage years. Awesome, man. Well, my first pick is a show that I saw on September 9th, 2010. This was at a smaller venue in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a band that I thought that I would never get to see live, not to mention the entire original group, and that is the Pixies. Kim Deal actually was playing with them on bass during this tour, and it was a rehashing of the Doolittle album. And so they played the entire album through its entirety. And then after that, they did another set of some of their popular favorite songs. That was just an incredible experience. One of my uh, girlfriends from college, she and I went to the show and just had a complete blast. Uh, unfortunately, my wife wasn't able to go to that one. And I think to this day, she really, really regrets not going to that show because that is our favorite Pixies album. So yeah, uh, the Pixies would be my number five pick. Awesome. Pixies actually are one of my favorite bands that I've never seen live. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's well, maybe you one. do have a little bit of a bucket list. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely do. I, I Yeah. So my next pick, it was back in 2001. It was like right after 9-11. I went into the city to see a singer named Lois Mafio, and she went by Lois at the time, or still does. She made an album with Brendan Canty, who's best known as the drummer from Fugazi, and they made an album called The Union Themes under the name Lois and Brendan. And she had a bunch of great solo albums before that, and since then, 
And again, somebody that just in my younger years, I just really looked up to. So there's a whole story to the show. I'll try to make it somewhat brief. There's a story to every show. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's, yeah, exactly. So at the time I was in college or about to be in college, I forget, but I was very into computer programming and web design. And you got to realize that like in 2000, 2001, web design was uh, HTML. It was coding. It wasn't just social media and you could like make websites. And I was really into that. And my whole goal going to the show was I was going to propose to Lois that I would build her a website because she didn't have one at the time. So I told my friends, we got to talk to her. We got to meet her. Like, this is my goal. So (laughs) they played a hell of a show. Great show. She played stuff from her solo album. She played stuff from this Lois and Brendan album. It was awesome. Also, the opening band was this band called Diastamata, which I don't think they're around anymore, but they were just awesome. And it's always cool when you go to see some band you really love and the opening act is just a really great band and like a total surprise that you had never heard of. So that was a bonus as well. So anyway, after the show, we did get to talk to Lois and Brendan and I talked to Lois and I took a picture with her and it was all very nice. And when we were leaving, we were in the car driving home and my friend said, oh, I'm surprised you didn't ask her about the website thing. And I was like, oh man, (laughs) like I forgot to ask her. I forgot to ask her if I could make a website for her. So I ended up emailing her and working with her a little bit. It didn't come to fruition, but it was actually kind of, she was very, again, very kind to me. And I was just kind of an idiot and not very like business savvy. So it didn't end up happening, but it's a cool and funny memory. And again, it was like right after 9-11 and going into New York City at that time was very weird and not to say scary, but it's like, what is it going to be like? You know, it was just, it's hard to explain if you weren't around back then or cognizant of what was going on, you know? Yeah. By the way, I looked up all the dates. The internet is a beautiful thing. So uh, I was able to pinpoint the actual dates because my memory is not that great. And uh, I also used a few ticket stubs to do so. But uh, in October 3rd of 2013, my buddy Sean and I drove up to uh, Asheville, North Carolina to a place called the Orange Peel to see this band called Goblin. Are you familiar with Goblin, Sean? I've heard the name for sure. All right. So they're an Italian progressive rock band. And what they're most famous for is for horror film soundtracks. That's right. They did a lot of Dario Argento's soundtracks. They did Suspiria. They did Tanabray. And they did, I believe it was Dawn of the Dead soundtrack as well. I didn't know this at the time when we got there, but they had never even been to the States before. And so this is their first time in the States and they're playing this show. And it's these older Italian guys and their English is good, but it's a little broken. And they are talking to the crowd and they are just so amazed that so many people over here know who they are and love them that they are holding their cameras up and taking selfies of themselves with the (laughs) crowd. I mean, you know, it's usually the opposite, right? Usually you're trying to get a selfie with the band in the background, but this was like the total opposite. They were such great guys. 
They had a screen drop in the background that was playing all the horror movies that their music was related to as they played each song. And they were just so gracious and phenomenal. A few of the band members, I believe, had passed and they had some younger guys in the group that were filling in. But uh, all the main guys were there and it was simply fantastic. One of the best shows I've ever been to. That is awesome. Yeah. All right. So for my number three, it's an artist that both of us know and love. It's Kishibashi, the first time I saw him. To put it simply, the first time I saw him was amazing because I brought my wife with me. It was at my favorite Austin venue, which is the Mohawk. And I really, really hope the Mohawk survives the pandemic. A lot of the places I used to see shows at here in Austin have not. But seeing Kishi live, man, I had no idea what to expect. And he puts on such a good show with the theatrics and with the glitter and the lights and confetti. And it's just an experience. And the first time I saw him going through all that stuff was just amazing. It was one of the really most uplifting shows I've ever been to. In a way, I almost wish I didn't see him the second time because that's when I realized, oh, Like, I know bands do the same thing for every show, but like I saw him two years later and it was the same exact show. And it was like, oh, okay. Like he has a routine and he does the thing where he comes out into the audience on the last song and like, okay, this is the motions that he goes through. So still have a lot of respect for the guy, but I was just blown away by that first time I saw him and that first experience, having no idea what to expect, but just being a big fan of his music. Uh, I know you've seen him live too, so I I know you can relate to this. Yeah, I saw him at the Saxopa Paul Ballroom in uh, (laughs) North Carolina. It's actually a place outside of Chapel Hill. It's just this desolate community, but uh, it's an amazing, amazing venue. It's my favorite in North Carolina, actually. And uh, yeah, it was cool. He ended with uh, This Must Be The Place, Naive Melody by Talking Heads. And that is my favorite song of all time and the one that always makes me think of my wife. And uh, that was just super cool. Uh, You know, it's kind of kismet. Moving right along to my number three. This is a band or bands. Actually, I have to say bands on this one because it was all part of one show. Uh, My buddy Chris and I in grad school we decided that we wanted to see the Beck and Flaming Lips tour that was going on at the time. Now, this was during Beck's album Sea Change, which I still contend is his best ever. And then Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots, which, in my opinion, might be the best Flaming Lips album ever, although I am a little partial to Soft Bulletin as well. But the closest place that we thought that they were playing was... Cleveland, Ohio. And we had no idea until we got on the road because this was before like all these driving apps. You know, this was when you turn off something from Google Maps, right, to go to a place. And so we had no idea how far this was. It was over nine hours up to Cleveland. Oh, man. (laughs) So we drove all the way up there during uh, a break and we got to see Beck. And the Flaming Lips, the Flaming Lips opened for him. And if you've never seen the Lips, you got to go to a show because it's like a huge birthday party. There's confetti and giant balls and shit just flying everywhere. It's so much fun. But then 
when Beck came on stage, the Flaming Lips actually were his backup band. It was just such a cool experience. Two great albums that came out in the same year and these guys all sharing a stage. From what I hear, the tour was not a success as far as Wayne from the Flaming Lips and Beck getting along. I hear that they just absolutely hated each other. And I think it's the Conan O'Brien show. You can look this up on YouTube. He had the Flaming Lips play one night, and then the next night Beck played, and of course the Lips were the backup band. And Ted Danson was on the show that night, and he's like sitting under a blanket playing the triangle during that Beck performance, and it's kind of friggin' awesome. <laughs> That's funny. I definitely gotta look that up. Uh, yeah, but that is uh, third on my list. And I gotta say, man, with my list this time, I've seen some like big names, and a lot of those are gonna make my honorable mentions. But for me, this list was sort of about which shows I enjoyed the most and had the most fun at. Yeah, I feel like my list is very similar because, you know, I've seen, you know, some really big names, but I'm trying yeah. to think of shows again that have like good stories to them or where something really cool happened. I was curious of when this next concert on my list took place because you did your due diligence of actually looking up when they were it was more for my benefit i think <laughs> you know because my memory is so fuzzy and it's just kind of like you put the date to it it's like oh yeah that's awesome yeah yeah i remember that you know yeah well i've mentioned on the show many times we've talked about the band dinosaur jr mm -hmm. now i ended up seeing dinosaur jr proper a few years after this show because they reunited so i got to see the original lineup of Dinosaur Jr., which was awesome. But the show I want to talk about was I actually saw Jay Maskus solo after he released his album under Jay Maskus and The Fog. The album was called More Light. And I'm looking at an archive. There were two shows at the Wetlands in New York City. One was on April 10th. 2001 the other one was on april 11th 2001 so i can't remember which one i went to but obviously he played <laughs> a double header that week so jay mascus even though he's playing solo he had murph who was the drummer from dinosaur doing the drumming he had mike watt playing bass so nice. mike watt from the minutemen who's you know they're all buddies all these guys from sonic youth dinosaur the minutemen all those bands that were on sst records were kind of buddies with each other back then. So I basically got to see a version of Dinosaur Jr. with Mike Watt on bass. And it was so awesome. The Wetlands is a club that's not around anymore. It actually closed like a few years after this show. It's been gone for a long time. But it was like a tiny little place, man. And we were right up on the stage. And... A funny thing about this, I don't have it anymore because it was just something that I didn't want to bring with me when I moved. But Jay Mascus, his set list was poster sized. I don't know if he's like blind or something, but he had <laughs> this massive set list and they duct taped it to the floor with this huge like three inch marker writing on it with the songs. And as soon as the music stops, my friends dove on the stage and ripped it off the stage and <laughs> handed it to me because they knew I was such a I was such a hardcore dinosaur junior fan and I had that for years but that was just 
it was That's such awesome. a good show. And another bonus to that show, another opening band that I knew nothing about at the time, but then became a huge fan of that you're probably familiar with this band because I think they're from your neck of the woods is Elf Power. Yeah. Yeah. So they opened that show and I was like, whoa, these guys are awesome. You know, mm-hmm. like really big bonus for that show. So yeah, that's my, that was my number two. Cool. All right. My number two is a heavy hitter, actually. This is kind of a crazy story too. My wife and I drove up to Washington, D.C. to attend a festival called Area 2. Area 2 was July 28, 2002, and it was headlined, mistakenly, by Moby, but opening up for Moby was Busta Rhymes and David Bowie. So I got to see (laughs) David Bowie in concert, and let me tell you, man, he was one of the coolest, most gracious humans that I've ever seen on stage. I mean, here he is, the superstar, can do anything he wants, can act any way he wants. But he was just so appreciative of all the fans. And even though during this tour, there was a building beside the stage that was all techno music. And it was kind of drowning him out a bit. He would make jokes about it and things like that, but you know how a lot of rock stars would just get pissed off and run off the stage and just act so entitled? He played through it, and he was just so cool and gracious, and uh, it really changed the way I thought about him. I mean, I knew he was probably a pretty cool guy, and I, I liked his music, but I think more than anything that it made me more into his music because of his presence and you know the way he was. And I could see my wife drooling beside of me because boy's a good looking guy, you know. <laughs> but the crazy thing about this show is it was up in Washington, D.C. And it was around a month before the D.C. sniper shooting started. I just remember being in grad school and I would run home every day just to see the news because, I mean, you were alive during this time, Sean. You probably remember mm-hmm. this very vividly, too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But we would flip on the news every day because it would be daily that someone would get shot. And I remember flipping it on one day and I saw this gas station where this person was killed. And I looked at my now wife and I said, oh, my God, we stopped at that gas station. Wow. Of all the random places and, you know, this being outside of D.C. in the middle of kind of nowhere, we had stopped at one of those gas stations where one of the shootings took place. So, uh, yeah, that makes that show very memorable as well, but uh, man, just knowing that I saw David Bowie in concert and you know experiencing that moment, it was incredible, and it's number two on my list. Awesome. Well, my number one will not be surprising to too many who pay attention <laughs> because I've talked about it before, and I've named this particular album as my favorite album of all time. It's uh, Tegan and Sarah. The album being The Con, we saw them on the tour of The Con in 2007 when the album came out. And it's a really great memory because that was one of the first albums my wife and I bonded over when we were first together and newlyweds. We really got into a lot of music together. And all of my best friends went to that show with me. Uh, Jesse was there with his wife and My really close friends, John and Liz, were there, and my wife was there, and Tegan and Sarah were awesome. And again, bonus, really cool opening band was called Ann Horse, A-N 
horse. If you've never heard of them, check them out. So that, again, had never heard of them, but they came out and just crushed it as the opening act. So that was awesome. But then seeing Tegan and Sarah were great. And then I got to throw it out, as I've said on the show before, we saw them again in 2017 on the 10th anniversary of that album. So we basically got to see them perform this album live two separate times. And being that it's my favorite album of all time, I think that's pretty awesome. And it has to be my number one concert. I think the first one is more special to me because of the people who were there with me. And it was Mm -hmm. my first time seeing Tegan and Sarah live. So yeah, it was that first, the first time I saw Tegan and Sarah is probably my favorite show that I can think of at this point. So yeah, that's my number one. Awesome, man. Wow. I mean, for my number one, like I said, I mean, I've seen some really big bands in concert. And when I go over my honorable mentions, you know, there'll probably be people listening to this. It's like, what in the hell were you thinking when you made this list? (laughs) And with this pick, they're probably going to be thinking, why in the hell did you pick this band? But people ask me all the time, what's the best show that you've ever been to? And every time I think about this question, I keep coming up with the same answer. And that is my wife and I went to a small venue in Charlotte, North Carolina on August 27, 2010, which, uh, you know, now close to 11 years ago. But we got to see Tears for Fears play. And let me tell you, I mean, like I knew all their hit songs, of course, you know, in a Mm. handful I probably didn't know that they did until I heard them play them there. But that show, for whatever reason, I guess I just didn't expect much. You know, you've got aging artists who from the 80s and you're like, man, their voices are probably not going to be that great. We've seen bands from the 80s before and it doesn't have the same magic as far as what you're used to and what you've heard in the past. But Man, they did not miss a beat. They were fantastic. And it was just my wife and I. And, you know, it was kind of a date night for us because we had already had our first child and we had dropped her off with my parents. I don't know, man. There was something about it. It was just magical. And the other thing that I remember was a can of Foster's was $15. Uh, That's (laughs) the other thing I remember about this show. (laughs) So the two of us had one beer each at the show, and my wife decided that if she was going to get a beer, she was going to get the biggest one. So, uh, yeah, great memories of that show, man. And like I said, I know people would chastise me for saying that that's my number one show, but that's the one I had the most fun at. So, yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, you mentioned honorable mentions, so let's go into those. I got to say, I could do honorable mentions all day. Oh, me too. Yeah, but I just got to, first of all, shout out the three times I saw Slater Kinney because they're just a legendary band and there are stories to those shows as well. Uh, The three times I saw Mannequin Pussy because they're one of my favorite bands, especially the show they headlined, the tour, the last time I saw them because they brought great bands along with them. It was just an amazing show. A show that my band played was at my friend Kyle's house, and he had a backyard show. It was kind of like a party, and we just went there, and we played a set where we invited anybody who wanted to 
to sing lead or play any instrument that they wanted to. So we had uh, just a lot of our friends jumping up on stage, playing the songs with us, singing along with us. It was just a really great like house show, and it's one of my favorite memories of being in a band, so I had to shout that one out. I could just go on all day. I don't know. There's uh, so many, and I just really miss going to shows. <laughs> so what yeah. are some of your honorable mentions? Yeah, no doubt about missing shows, man. Um, several years ago, there was a Facebook post and it said, name 50 artists that you've actually seen. And so I started doing that list and I got to 50 and I was like, oh, well, I'll just keep going. I got to 100. I was like, wow, I've seen a lot of people. I'll just keep going. I got to 200. Man, I ended up at like 300 bands that I've seen over wow. my life. That's the thing, man. I go to a lot of shows. I've been to a lot of festivals, too. So, you know, when you talk about festivals, you can mark, you know, like 20 people off of that list a lot of times. But um, some of the best shows that I've seen that are very memorable to me, Bob Dylan, April 28, 2001. It's the first time I had ever seen Bob Dylan. He was playing a free show in downtown Charlotte called Charlotte Center City Fest. Just a magical moment seeing him for the first time. I've I've seen him three or four times since then. Prince, I saw him on the last tour that he actually did. And that was on March 26, 2011 uh, at uh, Greensboro Coliseum. That was a fantastic show. I just have such great memories of seeing him. And every time I tell people I've seen Prince, people are like, man, I wish I would have gotten to see him before he passed. But, you know, passing so soon. I think a lot of people always say, well, I'll catch them next time they're in town. But um, my my rule of thumb is if it's somebody you want to see, go do it because Mm -hmm. uh, you just never know what the next day is going to bring. And that leads me to some of my next picks. Uh, I got to see James Brown February 2nd, 2001 with a 45 piece band. It was kick ass. My wife and I went to that show. Uh, A guy named Leon Russell we saw here in town in Greensboro June 5th, 2015. He passed away less than a year later. Fantastic piano player, played a lot of backup for bands, and I believe he actually played piano on Pet Sounds. So uh, a fantastic individual artist in his own right. I saw the Ramones at Lollapalooza 96. 1997 was an awesome year, and this is why I'm glad that I looked up these dates, Sean. Uh, (laughs) May 22nd, I saw The Descendants. That was an awesome show with my wife. Uh, That was one of the first years that we were dating. Saw the Rolling Stones that October. And also, my wife and I traveled to the beach to stay with a friend of mine. And on June 7th, 1997, we got to see the Lemonheads play. And that was a killer small venue show. And then the last one I want to mention, you mentioned Elf Power. I got to see Jeff Mangum in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He was the uh, lead for Neutral Milk Hotel back in the day. But he put on a solo show on January 30th, 2012. And my wife... And I and my good friend Sean and Luke, we had front row seats to that show. And when I say front row, I mean dead center front row seats to that show. And that was fantastic. And then the last one I want to mention, only in mention, not because I enjoyed it, but I got to see on September 1st, 1989, Millie Vanilli. Yes. Thank you very much. (laughs) That's true. That's awesome. (laughs) Cool. All right, man. So we talked about our best shows, and I feel like we can't talk about our best shows without talking about the single worst show that we've ever been to in our lives. So uh, I'm going to let you go first. 
Man, it's hard. You know, I don't have. Oh, I, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you do. I know you've been wanting to talk about this for a while. I can only think of bad instances or bad parts of shows I've been to. And I'll give you an example. I saw the band Yell, which is a French pop group that I've talked about before, spelled mm -hmm. Y-E-L-L-E, -E, if you want to look them up. Great music. And it was a great show. It was amazing to see them live. But I will never forget, there was some idiot in the crowd who was hopped up on something just really going off the whole time like trying to start a mosh pit and just slamming into everybody who was just trying to dance and enjoy the show and he kept slamming into me and everybody's like it did you know calm down dude relax like and he was just going off the whole time. So I took great pleasure in the fact that I elbowed this guy in the ribs like 700 times throughout the night because I knew he wasn't feeling it at the time, but I know he felt it the next morning. Right. So that was one example. And then I've just thought about times where the opening band wasn't great and really didn't match the headlining act. Like sometimes bands will tour with other bands, but sometimes a band or artist will tour and then local bands will open up. And sometimes there's a real mismatch there. Mm -hmm. Like when we saw Andrew WK, there was some local like bluegrass type band that opened <laughs> up for him and it was just really weird and they kind of weren't that great. And it was like, why, why did they do this? And then there have been some bands that have just been kind of openly hostile to the audience. And I really, really am put off by that. Yeah. Uh, Corey and I saw this band called Smidley. I'm not afraid to name them by name because they suck. And they were just kind of rude and souls to the audience. And then <laughs> there's another one that I remember seeing. And this is kind of funny. There was this band that I saw in New Jersey when I lived in New Jersey, and I forget what they were called, but they were was just it Bon kinda... Jovi? No, no, no. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. My <laughs> wife has seen Bon Jovi. I've never seen Bon Jovi, okay? So <laughs> I was just watching this band that was just kind of like a Strokes ripoff, and they were like, again, just being like kind of ungrateful to the audience like hey what's wrong with you guys you're not getting into this we're from new york and my friend screams at that i've been to new york and it sucks <laughs> <laughs> i can't think of one single like really bad show i've ever been to because mm -hmm. i've i can always pull like some kind of good experience or memory i think but yeah, there have been like these little singular things that have made shows less enjoyable. And those are just a few of them. So now after much hype, I want to hear what was your worst show? This must be a good story. Well, I've had a few bad ones myself. I'd spoken on the show a few years ago about going to see the English Beat and I didn't know it was on St. Patrick's Day. So, you know, there were people there that liked the band. And then there were just drunk people that were out that night that just wandered and paid money to come into the show. And they were just belligerent. It was awful. Horrible crowd. But I can't say this was the worst show because English Beat was fantastic. They were so good. And my wife and I enjoyed ourselves as much as we could with the jerks that were around us. I saw Smashing Pumpkins on that Melancholy Infinite Sadness tour. And it was one of the worst shows I've ever seen. They did five encores, and the last one 
was just them coming out and just making screeching guitar noise. And I think it was just to piss the audience off. Them just being prima donnas. At one point, they had like young ladies and kids jumping up and down on stage during the song 1979. It was just a really lame, horrible show. And uh, I had been listening to them when they had put out like Lull and Gish up to Siamese Dream. And they were one of my favorite bands at the time. So uh, it was very, very disappointing. But the worst show that I had been to, Sean, was on October 22nd, 2014 at the Greensboro Coliseum. And it was Motley Crue's quote-unquote final tour. They are still touring to this day, (laughs) seven years later. This was the worst show I had ever been to, although I did get to see Alice Cooper open for them, and Alice Cooper was fantastic. I'll give Alice that. You've seen Alice too, right? Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. But uh, Motley Crue came out, and Vince Neil just slovenly and just awful, couldn't sing. (laughs) And Nikki Six was just like using every expletive that he could think of. I imagine being at a Motley Crue show in the 80s, like them like using foul language and stuff was probably pretty cool. But this just sounded so forced, like they were trying to go back to the 80s. Yeah. yeah. They were awful. And you could tell that it was just a money grab tour. It was the worst show, hands down, that I've ever been to. And I like Molly Crew, And, um, you know, I wish I would have gotten to see them at the height of their popularity. But, man, they sucked. Uh, <laughs> I would never go see them again. And I would not recommend anybody going to see any more of their farewell tours. So, uh, yeah, that's it, man. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the Smashing Pumpkins one still breaks my heart because that was actually my first like real concert that I went to. Uh, yeah. I paid for the tickets myself and me and my dad saw Smashing Pumpkins from the nosebleed seats. And I remember at the time, Billy Corgan and the pumpkins were known for doing things like calling off shows if they were in a bad mood or, yeah. and crap like that. And I remember after the first song, somebody threw a full drink and had a direct hit on Billy Corgan's guitar, like hit his hands with it. And he stopped playing guitar and I was like, oh, shit, the show's over. Like after the first song, like, oh, my God, they're going to end it now. And he just like he gave the guy the finger and kept going. So it ended up being like pretty cool. But I was just like, oh, God, no, please don't don't cancel the show. We're getting hit by a drink, please. <laughs> the one thing I will say about that show that I did like Fountains of Wayne opened up for them and they were fantastic, man. And this was before um, Stacy's Mom was a hit song, which I hate that song. But uh, yeah. I can't remember the album name, but it had this kid in a Superman outfit on it. And uh, their big hit was Radiation Vibe. But yeah, that entire album is actually really good. Yeah, I I believe that's a self-titled album. Could be, yeah. And uh, one of the dudes in that band died of COVID, so rest oh, in really? peace. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know that. So. All right. Well, that's sad news. Uh, but uh, mm, speaking sorry. of other news, let's roll into <laughs> some news, Sean. <laughs> All right. Well, I was curious if you wanted to talk about the whole GameStop stock Wall Street bets situation. Sure, man. You know more about it than I do. I, you know, I've loosely tried to follow it. So I'll let you go with this one. So the only thing at this point is that there's already been a million podcasts on it and the stock keeps going up and down and nobody like it's hard to get a straight story on is the short squeeze 
Squozen. It's actually kind of a joke now if you go on Wall Street Bets, uh, whether or not people should still hold on to the stock if it's been squeezed or whatever. So as usual, we're not doctors, lawyers, or financial advisors. None of this is financial advice, so take it for what it's worth. But the whole idea was that this subreddit Wall Street Bets noticed that there was a lot of short interest in the GameStop stock about a year ago, so they started buying it on mass, which makes the stock go up. So these hedge funds that had shorted the stock end up having to buy it back. It's kind of a complicated thing, and I'm probably not explaining it that well. I've heard it explained on 10 different podcasts, and I do like understand it, but I probably can't explain it that well myself. But anyway, the idea is you make the stock go up, and then the people who have shorted it have to buy it back at a way higher price and it has supposedly bankrupted some of these companies. So yeah. I just think it's interesting and it's tangentially related to the video game industry. And we've shit talked GameStop, you know, in recent times. Especially. Why in the hell did they have to help this damn business? <laughs> that's what <laughs> right, pisses me right. off about it. Well, that's another aspect of it is that, like, does this even help the company? Like, it remains to be seen, like, making a company's stock price go up. Like, what does that actually do? If they have bad management and a bad business model, it doesn't necessarily matter that this is happening. Best thing they can do right now is cash out. I'll tell you that. Pay their debts, cash out, and just get the hell off my planet. That would make me happy. (laughs) Bitter? A little, yeah. So my two cents on this whole thing, my personal kind of take on this is actually that it really got me into Reddit, if you can believe that. I've used Reddit over the years just from time to time. I didn't even have an account until last year, not related to Wall Street Bets. I made a Reddit account for some other hobbies that I'm into that have subreddits, Mm -hmm. but I never posted But when Wall Street Bets came around, I got caught up in the hype. And full disclosure, I played with these stocks, too. I I didn't make any crazy money or anything like that. But it was just kind of fun going from Wall Street Bets to the Penny Stocks subreddit to the Personal Finance subreddit. And it actually formed in me this desire to pay more attention to my personal finances and like what my investments are. So my thanks to the Wall Street Bets crowd is that not that I made <laughs> made money on GameStop <laughs> or any of these other things they were trying to pump, but that exploring around with penny stocks and then more long-term investments, I was able to, to make some money. And again, not financial advice at all, but being able to pay attention to that kind of stuff made me a little bit smarter about those kind of things. And I thought that was pretty cool, like a, just a little side effect of this whole like internet phenomenon going on. And at the time when it was going on, it was just really cool to see a peasant revolt of this kind. You know what I mean? Yeah, no doubt, man. Especially these people that are uh, playing the market, betting on stocks, losing money. That's just crappy. And uh, to see them get their just desserts, you know, that makes me happy. But the other thing that made me happy about this, Sean, is the 10-year-old kid who uh, had 10 shares of GameStop stock. He actually sold those shares and made $3,000. And I could just imagine this kid getting stock for his birthday, especially at 10 (laughs) years old, and being like, what the f*** is this? Where's my 
fucking game, you know? <laughs> but now he has three thousand dollars to buy as many games as he wants. So kudos to that kid. That was awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. man should we go into pickups yeah i don't have any so you can go ahead oh really? i actually didn't tell the story i mentioned it last month my switch broke so now i'm out of a switch and i'm kind of on the fence between three options one is just getting out of the switch game completely and selling all the games and saying i'm no. done with the switch Option two, which I know you don't like, is getting a Switch Lite as kind of a stopgap until I can find a real Switch. Because in my mind, as a collector, I'll probably have a Switch Lite eventually down the road. So maybe I'll just grab one because they're readily available and they're cheaper than a standard Switch. Or option three is just wait until I can find a standard Switch again. But my Switch failed on me. I was able to sell it just like you did. And I'm glad, again, that you were able to sell your broken Switch was good information for me because I realized that I could sell my broken Switch and I made more than half of what a new Switch is worth by selling mine. So I do appreciate that. But yeah, it just kind of sucks not having one. It wasn't my favorite console in the world, but one of the things preventing me from just selling off the collection is that I have a bunch of really good games on that system that I have yet to play. So, man, I I really will probably just drop 
the 200 bucks on a switch Lite just to hold me over until I can find a real one. So yeah, not a score. That's like a reverse score, but I didn't have a chance to talk about that on our previous episode. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking about this originally, I didn't know that your plan was to eventually get a switch and, you know, I thought we were just going to get a switch light and stay with that. Definitely. I mean, I think that's a great plan now because I know you're more of a handheld guy than you are a console gamer. So, you know, I, I think that would be a great option for you. But the Switch Lite not having the compatibility to hook up to a TV and also having a smaller screen is just something I didn't like when we had our first Switch Lite. And, you know, I like the original model Switch a lot more. So uh, I think that's a good plan, man. Just go with the Switch Lite at the beginning. And when some of these prices drop after the new systems come out, then, uh, you know, jump on one. All right. So for me, pickups, uh, I uh, had bought a copy of this game from GameStop at one point <laughs> for the PS4 Catherine full body. It came in the mail. And of course it didn't have the original case or, you know, any of that with it. So, uh, I took it back to GameStop and, uh, got my money back and purchased a few more games instead. But, uh, I was actually able to find this locally and support one of the small businesses in my area. So I picked that up for the switch. Uh, I grabbed disaster report four Deadly Premonition 2, which I know Sean is very excited about me getting those two games. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. I don't have Deadly Premonition 2. I need to get it. Yeah, I think it's dropped to about 30 bucks now. If you follow Wario64 on Twitter, he posts that game quite often. So um, if I hear of any good deals on it, I'll let you know for sure. Cool. For Christmas, I got uh, the Psycho Shooting Collection Volumes 1 and 2. I got a copy of Toki for the Switch. The Longest Five Minutes and Cadence of Hyrule. A lot of these were from Christmas from my parents who, uh, you know, I wasn't able to celebrate Christmas until about three weeks later because of COVID. My brother and my parents all had COVID. All are doing well right now. But uh, yeah, we just had to delay Christmas. So that's the reason for some of those pickups. For the Super Nintendo, Joe and Mac 2, Prehistoric Man, and actually recently got a copy of Lufia 2 locally. Uh, I think I mentioned to you that my wife got me a copy of Lufia 2 for Christmas. And she said, yeah, I got you this copy of Lufia 2. She's like, I couldn't believe it was only 20 bucks. <laughs> and I was like, uh, did this happen to come from Japan? She's like, yeah, why do you ask? I said, because that's not a real copy of the game. It's a fake yeah. reproduction. And she said, but you can still play it, right? I'm like, that's not the point. No, it's not the yeah, same. Yeah, I can still play it. <laughs> so now the $20 version of Lufia 2, we are currently in the middle of our donation drive, and that's going to be one of the prizes that I'll be giving out this year. Cool. Along with some other stuff, of course. And, of course, up front, I will tell the person who wants this, this is a reproduction if you just want to play the game. But uh, I do have an authentic copy of that game now. And then the last few items are Game Boy items. I've been into collecting the Game Boy systems lately, and um, there was someone actually locally that had a pink Game Boy Pocket. Those were Japan only, and uh, I was able to get a very nice one without having to import it, so save some money there. But I have imported several Japanese-only Game Boy titles. These are titles that never made it to North America. Most of these titles are shmups and puzzle games, and those include Battle Geist, Final Reverse, Volley Fire, 
Shalvo 55, New Bow, Penguin Land, and Petan. A final one that I got that's a homebrew Game Boy game that was actually done over in Europe uh, is called Tobu Tobu Girl. And that's a, a really cool sort of platforming game. And uh, that's it for my pickups, man. Awesome. Well, in that case, let's roll into what are you playing? I do have a handful here, Rich. So do you want to go first? Sure, I can go first. I've got two, actually, this month. One of those is not Battle Cats, y'all. Oh, I okay. have Are you stopped still playing, playing Battle Cats. Oh, you stopped playing Battle Cats. I did. And the reason is because I found another phone game that I played. Oh, cool. All right. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, it's sort of a tower defense game where you build up your armies and you join guilds and things like that. And it's called Crush Them All. I've been having a good time with this game. Yeah, I've been playing it for actually uh, a month now. This was my, today's my 30-day anniversary on this game. Doesn't seem like I've been playing it that long. But it's a game that I play on a daily, and it has a mechanic in it where the game runs in the background even when you're not playing it. So you can advance and level even as you're not playing it, although you can't participate in guild events and things like that. But um, what I like about this game is there, you know, how all of these games have all these like micromanage types of currency. Mm-hmm. Well, this one has that, and you can choose to do that, but with this game, you actually get plenty of this currency by just playing the game if you play it enough. So you can still get ahead of people if you want to spend a lot of money at the beginning, but it doesn't take you long to catch up if you don't spend any money on the game, and I haven't spent any money on the game, and you know, it's just something that I'm enjoying. So I would say that anybody that's interested in a new phone game enjoys sort of tower defense games. I would say pick this up. It's free. And then the final game that I have been playing recently, and I'm ashamed to say that my nine-year-old and especially my four-year-old are completely kicking ass at this game, and that's Cuphead. Man, that is one of the most get-good games that I have ever seen. (laughs) Awesome. And it's tough, but I actually enjoy it. I really love the animations. I love that old-style cartoon look. The music's fantastic. Even my wife commented about how good the music was. And for my birthday, bought me a Cuphead record because she enjoys it so much as well. My nine-year-old's good at the game, but dude, my four-year-old? I'm going to have to take some video of this kid playing this game. I mean, he's on the last world now. Like, he still has several bosses to beat, but... I watch him play some of these running gun levels and some of these boss levels, and it's utterly amazing. I mean, he plays this game nonstop, and uh, he does get frustrated. He does want to try to throw things, and I do have to stop him. (laughs) But it's one of those cases where, like, if he can't beat something, he'll play it, and he'll get frustrated, and then he'll go back and start the whole game over and then work his way back up and get better and better at some of the previous stuff. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I've never seen anything like it, man. That reminds me of uh, Bill's kids. Have you ever heard Bill from the Collector Cast? He talks about his kids. They like to play a game to completion and then delete their saves and start all over again. Oh, wow. Which I think is fascinating. So it sounds kind of similar. Not a complete game playthrough, but it's kind of cool having that desire to kind of start all over again from the beginning and get it right. That's really cool. Yeah, I noticed this years ago, I had a Rolling Thunder arcade machine, and that's a hard game. Growing up, I couldn't get past the first level. Oh, 
he mastered it. I mean, he got past the first level like within a week. He would just go out there all the time by himself in the garage. I mean, this is a three-year-old. Turn the machine on, push his stool up against the machine, and then play the game. I don't know. I, I guess it's just his personality, but he's just one of those kids that is just going to keep doing it and keep doing it until he gets it right, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, kudos to him. He's got more patience than I do, that's for sure. Is that game still digital only? How do you have it? Yeah, it, it's crazy, man, that this game is still digital only. They could make so much money if they did a physical edition of this. No, there's um, not as many physical only nerds as you think, just because uh, you're one. Oh, no, I think there are. I think there definitely are people that still love their physical stuff. And I, I know that they could make money off this. I mean, I've seen some of the shit that limited run sales. So something like Cuphead would definitely make quite a bit of money. From what I understand, though, is that they're waiting to put it out because they're wanting to do some sort of special edition, maybe add some bosses and things like that. So I think they want to do a more complete edition and they're finally going to put that out. But yeah. This is digital download. I think there might be, don't quote me on this, a physical copy on the Xbox One. I don't know if that's a disc, though. I think that might just be a download code. But there is packaging for it, so I know that that's out there. But, uh, yeah, that's it. That's what I've been playing other than our uh, playthrough games this month. So, Sean, what you been playing, man? Nice. Well, I've gotten back into Metal Gear Solid 5, if you can believe that. It's kind of like my old standby. (laughs) Yeah, I won't talk too much about it. It's just the kind of thing that when I'm kind of bouncing between games and just kind of frustrated trying to find something that really will hook me and Mm -hmm. can't, then I'll just fire up Metal Gear Solid 5. It's kind of funny playing this game. It's a six-year-old game from the PlayStation 3 and there's still an online aspect of it where you can go and invade other people's bases. So it's kind of fun to wonder if the person whose base you're invading and killing all their people and stealing all their stuff, if they're actually still playing the game. And I have had some retaliations on my bases from people who I've invaded. So it's been pretty interesting just to think who would still be playing this game on the PlayStation 3. And uh, I'll probably never stop playing it. I just love it so much. (laughs) It's awesome. I also am working my way through the campaign of Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. It's just one of the Call of Duties I haven't played yet. I really love the series. I've talked about this before. I try to play them all, and I'm like really behind on the campaigns. This one came out years ago, but it's it's in this weird part of the series that's like set in the future. It's completely a sci-fi game, and it's very sensory overload. Like it's super colorful and. Sometimes it's hard to tell like who's the enemy and who's a friendly, like you're just running around. It's very not easy on the eyes. You know what I mean? It's, it's just (laughs) sometimes too much on screen, but I like it. It's fine. And, uh, I'm just going to work my way through that. I'm also playing a game called code vein, which you're not going to believe this, but this is actually a souls like it's, (laughs) A Dark Souls <laughs> Yeah, I've style. seen you talking to Duke about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is known as one of the easier ones of these, and it's actually got way more RPG elements than a Souls game, from what I understand, at least. This is not my cup of tea. I'm not an expert on the genre. 
But I was persuaded, as you said, by Chris and Kelsey, that this one I might like because the character creator was really good and the game's not that hard overall and the anime stuff and the JRPG stuff. So I ended up grabbing that with some Microsoft bucks that my wife gave me for Christmas when I saw the game on sale. It's hard to explain. I do like it and... I do find it to be difficult, but it's not like brutally, crushingly, frustratingly hard. But I will say like I'm stuck on the second boss and I can't beat her. So I'm at this save point where I just kind of fire up the game and grind a little and then stop. Or I'll fire up the game, grind a little, go up a level, try that boss again. Don't even come close to beating her. I guess my next step is like watching a, a walkthrough or reading an FAQ for some tips because I must be doing something wrong. Now I'm way over leveled for the normal enemies. I'm running around killing them in one hit or two hits. And then I get to this boss and I can't beat her. Like I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. But anyway, Code Vein is kind of neat. I don't know if I'll stick with it, but I can uh, really appreciate the art style because it's anime and I really like the companion characters and the voice acting is really good. The whole presentation of the game is really well done. So we'll see what happens with that one. I'm still playing the first Templar with my wife. It was funny listening back to our last episode and I stand by every gushing thing I said about the first Templar. It's still awesome. It's still amazing. And I can't wait. Not that I can't wait to finish it because I'll be sad it's over, but I think Probably I will be writing a in-depth review of this game because more people really need to check it out. Nice, man. What system was that on again? I'm playing it on the 360. It's also available on PC. Okay. So if you ever see that, uh, I would recommend grabbing it. I think it's a really, really cheapo game, like a $2 game if you happen to catch it somewhere. And last but not least, I played a game called Cat Quest, and this is where I plug my article for the month. If you go to rfgeneration.com on the front page, search the blog, search my blog, I did a review of Cat Quest, which is a really cool, cute, relaxing, somewhat easy, but it has its challenges, action RPG. I don't know if it was developed for phone, but it was actually, it's available on Android. So it has kind of a mobile game aesthetic to it. The graphics are such that they look like they could be a flash animation, but not in a bad way. I know when I say that, that means it could look cheap and chintzy, but it just is a very simple, but like soothing game. I really enjoyed my time with it. You kind of just run around as a cat and hack and slash your way through an action adventure that the developers kind of described as a blend of Zelda and Skyrim kind of stuff. So I really like this game and it's an interesting situation because I have a physical copy of the first game, which is just slightly on the collectible side because they released a physical version of the first and second game. So I may do the same thing I did with my Middle Gear collections where I sell the one that's more valuable to buy the one that's cheaper but has more content on it because I really want to play Cat Quest 2. So... Yeah, I highly recommend Cat Quest to anyone who just likes cute RPGs like I do and just wants a nice relaxing. And on the shorter side, it's only about 8 to 10 hours long. So just a really cool, fun game. 
So to participate in our question of the month, as always, make sure you follow at RFG Playcast on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. It's at Sean Gray, S-H-A-W-N-G-R-A-Y. Or join our Discord. The link to the Discord is on the front page of RFGeneration.com. So let's start with Twitter. Oh, let's start with the question, actually. The question is, what Disney film or franchise that was never made into a video game would you like to see made? So on Twitter, we got Adam Bickman 2K. He said, how about an X-Men Legends style game, but for Big Hero 6? They had a DS and 3DS game, but I'm thinking like a home console, four to six player beat em up kind of game. That's a cool choice. Yeah. It's a great idea. Friend of the show, Corey Robertson, he said, cool runnings. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't laughed out loud. (laughs) One of the the Twitter responses in a while. So that was a good one. Funny story, man. My wife had to watch cool runnings in graduate school as a part of a business class. Oh, that's awesome. No idea why, but they did. Yeah. Very cool. Easy Racer said, the more I thought about it, the more I came up with. When you consider Sword in the Stone, the Rescuers movies, and the Great Mouse Detective, but then I realized one of Disney's most criticized movies would be a fantastic Zelda clone, The Black Cauldron. Oh, that's good. And then he adds, also, still wish they would have maximized the marketing around Wreck-It Ralph. Sugar Rush would have serious potential as an arcade racer. Fix-It Felix Mm -hmm. would be fun as well. Yeah, there's actually a Fix-It Felix game. Mm -hmm. They produced a few arcade cabinets that I believe they had touring the movie theaters during that time. But there's a lot of people that have actually made their own Fixit Felix arcade cabinet out of the um, the old Nintendo cabinets. You know that like Donkey Kong and uh, Mario Brothers, the original one, and uh, Donkey Kong Three came in. 
All right. Next, we got Ram Vox. He said, honey, I shrunk the kids. Kind of like monster in my pocket, but with more Moranis. You <laughs> <laughs> can never have enough Moranis. <laughs> Next, we had Kyle at Kyle325. He said, where's the Mulan game? Would make for a good hack and slash if done right. And I agree with that. I actually can't remember if I've seen the Mulan game, but imagine a Platinum Games developed Mulan game, a good one. That would be pretty cool. Yep. It's got your female heroine. Yep, exactly. Next, we have Buried on Mars. He said, Herbie the Love Bug did get a couple lousy handheld games, but I would love to see the series get a legit PC console racing game. And then STC Pod said, if you drop the controller, Herbie starts driving for you. <laughs> to which Kevin <laughs> replied, yeah, I would make it a Metroid-like racer. Herbie loses his powers after getting hit by a bolt of lightning and you gain his powers back by winning races. <laughs> so I love the it's brainstorming, love the it. developmental brainstorming in our Twitter threads. All right, let's jump over to the Discord. I didn't get any answers on Instagram, but I did get a few on the Discord. So, Game Boy Guru, a.k.a. Metal Fro, he says, Gummy Bears. I was a big fan of that show as a kid, and I think there are some fun possibilities there. And, of course, after reading this message, I had that theme song stuck in my head for the rest of the day. That's one of the all-time greats. My wife and I randomly sing that to each other sometimes. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's such a good one. (laughs) All right. Next, we have Engineer Mike. He says the black hole and the rescuers both had plots that could have been made into great games. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Shaggy. He says Secret of Nim, Sword in the Stone. And then he says Bambi. You play from the hunter's perspective trying to shoot Bambi. Okay, Shaggy. Thanks, man. That's a... (laughs) Come on, you know I don't like animal cruelty in games. We can't have that. And we also posed this question on the forum thread at rfgeneration.com, which is where you should be when we're playing the games. That's the best place to go and comment on them. And we did get a response from our old friend, Mr. Stubbs. He said, while there were games that were made from the Tim Burton live action adaptation, I would love to see a video game based off the original Alice in Wonderland from 1951. Since the film is so old, I doubt a game will ever come out, but I feel that with its many settings and interesting characters, Alice in Wonderland would have been an amazing Disney Capcom platformer, much like the games we're playing this month. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The way that movie's set up, it's almost already built into different stages, you know? So, uh, yeah, I think that would make a totally awesome Disney Capcom platformer. And I would recommend to Stubbs, I don't know if he's played the first Kingdom Hearts game, but there's quite a prominent Alice in Wonderland level in that game. So definitely check that out if you haven't. Uh, and lastly, we have Zofar53. He said, how about Fraggle Rock? That's a really good answer. He said, that counts, right? I think Jim Henson stuff is part of Disney now. Or how about Labyrinth? So this is a fun question, Rich. A lot of good answers. I'm actually going to echo one of the other 
people who said the great mouse detective, I think that would make a cool like character platformer, almost like a Sly Cooper thing where you could integrate like the Batman stuff, like the detective vision and solve mysteries and do action stuff, but then have these little vignettes where you were doing mystery solving stuff. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. So what's yours? You came up with this question. You must have a good one. Well, my answer's kind of fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I said old yeller. Okay. <laughs> Could have been much worse, actually. <laughs> well, I thought this would be like, you know, it would be a good boy and his dog sort of story where you could platform and switch out between the two and go through all of these linear levels. But then at the end of it, the dog gets bitten by a bat and you have to have a final boss battle against your dog. <laughs> that is horrible. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, man. That film, <laughs> it really messed me up as a kid. That one and Where the Red Fern Grows. If you love animals, don't watch either of those films. Yeah, I can't remember if I've seen them. If I have, they're too distant of a memory. So that's probably a good thing by the sounds of it. And I just want to mention two other things. One, there is a Labyrinth game on the Famicom. It didn't make it to the U.S. And then two, my wife's pick. Uh, it sounds like a few people actually mentioned this, but she said The Sword and Stone would make a cool game. Mm -hmm. She's a big fan of that movie. And uh, yeah, I could see that being a cool game too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Again, one of the almost like along the lines of uh, fable type game, right, uh, yeah. an action adventure RPG kind of thing would be pretty cool. Yeah, but I was happy to hear a lot of these sort of what I would say sort of Disney B titles. You know, there were there were some that were really popular, but you know, stuff like Sword and Stone and The Rescuers, I kind of forgot about those films. Yeah, I think one of the things is that so many Disney franchises have already been made into games that it was a little bit challenging to find something that hadn't been done. But as usual, I, I hope people hear these questions and they just want a free form. Like, yeah, there's been Lion King games, but if you wanted to see a Lion King game that was like, I don't know, you play, uh, it's a strategy RPG or something. I, I don't know. Like, that's the kind of answers we're looking for usually. So... I'm glad people got creative with it. Some really cool, uh, like I said, development brainstorming going on there. That's always really fun to see. So thank you for uh, participating in the question, guys. And just remember to keep an eye on our social media feeds for when those come up. All right. So all this Disney talk was inspired by our games for the month. We played DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and The Little Mermaid for the NES. We also played, as an optional playthrough, the DuckTales Remastered by Way Forward. Our participants for the month were the two of us, of course, Mr. Stubbs, Dougley007, Easy Racer, Game Ruler, and Game Ruler's No Account Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I love that trademark. <laughs> So as far as development history goes and nuts and bolts, I'm just going to say these are NES titles that were developed and published by Capcom. This is kind of known as a really hot streak for Capcom back in the late 80s, early 90s. DuckTales was released in North America in September 1989. 
Chippendales Rescue Rangers in June 1990 and The Little Mermaid in July 1991. These are games that are based on the movies and in this case of DuckTales and Chippendale Rescue Rangers, they were based on TV shows from the time, animated cartoon TV shows. Little Mermaid being a film, of course. So let's talk about our histories with these games. As you know, I grew up with NES, and I remember DuckTales. It was the must-have game, one of the best games of the system. Even to this day, when people talk about the top 10 games on the NES, a lot of the times you're going to see DuckTales on this list. The design of the game, as we'll get into, is so influential that games like Shovel Knight really borrowed heavily from some of the mechanics that we'll talk about. I have almost no history with Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and I have to be careful because I kept saying Chippendales even when I was <laughs> recording the intro for this episode. I had to do it over again because I said Chippendales. I still call it that, too. Yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah, it's actually Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. And the Little Mermaid game, I don't think I ever played these when I was younger, so... DuckTales, very, very strong memories playing the hell out of that game, but not playing the other ones. So what about you, Rich? You actually suggested Chippendale and Little Mermaid. So were these games you were familiar with or games you wanted to try out for the first time? Like you, I played DuckTales during the time when it came out on the NES, and it was one of my favorite games growing up. So Having it in this playthrough was just a way to refresh my memory about it and share a game that I really enjoy with the rest of the community. Chippendale Rescue Rangers is a game that I played during that time as well. It wasn't a very popular title, but a friend of mine growing up, his dad owned a video rental store, and this was one of the games that they had. And so they would just let me borrow games for free all the time. This is when I beat when I was a kid and just enjoyed it a lot. Uh, There's not a lot of buzz about this game. But uh, once again, I I thought that it was a title that I would really like to share with the rest of the community. Then The Little Mermaid. This is a game that I didn't play until I started collecting for the NES. I put it in the console a handful of times, just played it to try it out a little bit. Because it is a Disney game. It is a Capcom title. But um, it's one that I never got really far in, maybe not past the first two levels. I think I was either between this game or Tailspin. And then I looked at the prices online for what the carts went for. And so we usually try to keep it under budget. I think we try to keep it under $30, $35. And Tailspin itself is around a $30, $35 game. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's really why I went with The Little Mermaid in this case. But uh, yeah, uh, it's one that I always wanted to play and beat. And, uh, you know, I was able to do that this month. And uh, yeah, can't wait to talk about it. Awesome. Well, I know that you have all three of these games in your physical collection because you have a complete NES set. I played these games emulated, but I do own a physical copy of DuckTales. It was a gift from my friend Liz, so I will hold on to it forever because it has sentimental value to me. That's one of those ones that I will never sell. So I actually didn't replay the remake. I've played it in the past. Mm -hmm. Same. 
Oh, okay, good. And now I saw you added into the notes the Disney Afternoon Collection from 2017, which I actually kind of forgot about when I was putting the the outline together for this show. Have you played that? Is that a full remake or is that just ports of some of these games? From what I understand, it's just ports of some of the games. Uh, Disney Afternoon was a segment of television. I guess it would have been, what, early 90s or so? Uh, when mm. they played like DuckTales, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Tailspin, and a few of those Disney cartoons. So it's named after that, the Disney Afternoon collection. I didn't play those, but from what I understand, they're just exact ports of the original games. I think it includes DuckTales 2 and also Chippendale Rescue Rangers 2, which are very pricey games in the market right now. So it's kind of nice that people are able to enjoy those games now. Do you remember watching these shows back in the day? Like, I think a lot of people watched the hell out of DuckTales. Some people watch it to this day. I think it's still a good show. But I actually, I watched the intro to Chip and Dale and it really brought back a lot of memories. Mm -hmm. It's probably something that I I haven't seen since back in the day. And it was really like one of those long buried memories that watching the intro to the show really brought it back to life for me. So were you into, I know you're a little bit older than me, but you're probably, I mean... (laughs) You never stop watching cartoons, Absolutely, right? man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love these shows. I don't think I ever got into Tailspin. I think that came a little bit later. But the DuckTales episodes, I still watch those when they come on. I love them. Chippendale Rescue Rangers, another fantastic show. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they just redid the DuckTales franchise. And it is a very good remake of that show. Awesome. Well, I'm curious, what do you have cooked up for the story? Story in 60 seconds. DuckTales. You're Scrooge McDuck, the richest duck in the world. However, the notorious Flint Heart Glomgold is tight on your heels and claiming this crown. With the help of your friends, you must travel to five distinct and treacherous locations, including the moon, to obtain their treasures and maintain your prestigious title. Rescue Rangers The Rescue Rangers have been called upon to save a lost kitten, but little do they know the sinister villain Fat Cat has merely created this distraction to capture Gadget and force her to work for him. It's up to Chippendale to rescue their friend and put an end to Fat Cat's diabolical plan. Little Mermaid. The menacing sea witch Ursula has cast a spell over all of the fish in the sea, causing them to do her bidding. Ariel, the Little Mermaid, must travel to the evil hag's castle in order to thwart her plans and ensure peace under the sea. Awesome. That was good. I believe that was under 60 seconds altogether. It's going to be kind of fun and challenging to, at the same time, to talk about three different games, but... Luckily, having been developed all by the same company, they do share some similarities, although The Little Mermaid is very unique in that it is not a platformer, but a shooter, basically. It's basically a shoot-em-up. Yeah. So one thing all three games share as far as structure is that there's a level-based structure with a boss battle at the end of each level with very unique boss battles. 
After that, the games start to fall into their own unique category. So let's go through them, starting with DuckTales. As I stated in the intro, DuckTales has some mechanics that are still influential to this day, mainly Scrooge McDuck's pogoing mechanic. Yeah. He has a cane that you can use to strike objects. There are many treasure chests in the world that you can open by hitting with the cane. It's like a golf swing. But there's also the pogoing mechanic, which is one of the most famous things about this game, is that when you jump and press down and then press the jump button again, you will bounce on the cane like a pogo stick. And this helps you. I believe you jump higher than your normal jump so you can get up to higher places and it's just a lot of fun to kind of bounce and traverse and as you get better and better at the game you can kind of pogo your way through the game except for in the Himalayas where you will sink into the snow so that's one of the things that kind of do to throw a wrench into the situation the other thing that's unique about DuckTales is that you can choose the levels. Yeah. In the other two games, the levels, they go in a specific order. But in DuckTales, you can play them in whatever order you want. I don't know if you knew this or not, but DuckTales has a tie-in with the Mega Man series. As you know, Mega Man, you can choose whichever level you want to go to first, much like you can in DuckTales. Some of the people from the same development team that did the Mega Man series actually also helped out on DuckTales. So uh, you can definitely see that direct influence there. Yeah, definitely makes sense. I bet some of those people helped out with Chip and Dale as well, because I, uh, in a lot of ways, that feels like a Mega Man game. Yes, I believe they did. I believe you're right about that. Yeah. So not only do you have the jumping and the cane mechanic, they did a really good job in DuckTales with the hazards and the verticality of the levels because there are vines and chains that are climbable and they will take you to different levels of the screen where the screen itself will totally transition vertically, almost like a Castlevania game. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this. It gives the levels a really broad and less linear kind of feel to them so you get a sense of exploration and this is spurred on also by the fact that there are so many secrets in this game they're not major secrets i would call them again kind of in the castlevania vein where you're just kind of finding secret items or walking along the top of the screen much in the way of like the original super mario brothers where you're walking on the header of the screen to find a secret room or something there's a lot of that going on as well then there's a mechanic where there's like a progression of you have to have a certain amount of money to proceed in the game. So it's kind of interesting, Rich. You can actually fast travel back to the main screen or you can try to gather up enough money to go through the game. It's an interesting extra mechanic than rather than just running through the level and getting to the boss, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that I like a lot about DuckTales compared to Chippendale and Little Mermaid. While Chippendale and Little Mermaid, which we'll talk about in a minute, are very linear games, right? You go from one side of the screen to the next mm -hmm. um, until you get to a boss battle. Even though in both games there's places where you go up and down, it's ultimately linear in that sense where you're confined to a board. 
But with DuckTales, player has a lot more autonomy in that not only can you select which level you want to go to, but the levels aren't exactly linear and you can do a lot of exploring in that game. It's a nice feature, and one of the cool things about DuckTales is though the levels do have a timer on them, the timers are large enough for you to actually fully explore the entire board. So that's one thing you don't really have to worry about, and it's kind of odd that they even included a timer on this game. You mentioned a few minutes ago that there's part of the game where you have to pay money to progress in the game. I know which scene you're talking about specifically. You're talking about the statue that's in the Amazon, right? Yes. Well, there's a few tricks that you can get around paying that money. I don't know if you knew this or not. If you make your way all the way to the statue, it will ask you to pay money and you just say no. And then the guys that throw the spears at you, what you can do is you can jump on top of one of them, pogo jump, and then jump onto the vine and grab it and go up without paying the money. There's also another little secret area in there before you get to the um, rolling boulder uh, where you can kind of go up and make your way up to the top of the screen and that will drop you right into the boss's room and you don't have to finish the rest of that level. So there's actually two ways to get around that. So the game has some really cool secrets in it. It offers up some really cool options that I kind of don't feel like the other two games give you. Sitting here wishing on a cement floor Just wishing that I had just something you wore I put it on when I go lonely Will you take off your dress and sell it to me? Let's look at the gameplay of Chip and Dale. Similar in that it's a platformer. Now, you might have to explain this to me. Is there a difference? You can choose between Chip and Dale mm-hmm. as your playable character. And I know this game has a two-player element that I, right. I didn't try. But like, what is the difference between the two characters? There is no difference between the two characters other than okay. uh, yeah, they're sprites. 
Okay. So I don't feel bad because I was like, <laughs> I can't tell the difference. Maybe there is like maybe one throws the tomatoes harder or jumps higher, no. but I can't tell the difference. So that's good to know. Yeah. There's no difference. <laughs> like you said, there's a two player mode in this game and that's basically what it's for. And I think being able to pick either one is more like fan service than anything. If you watch the cartoon chips, the kind of serious one and Dale is just a damn goofball. So I always play with Dale just because I have such great memories as a kid of, uh, you know, just enjoying his goofball antics. But uh, yeah, no difference in the two characters. Nice. And to a certain extent, there is a verticality to these levels as well, especially the first level. You're climbing like telephone poles, literally very high. And there are many different enemies in this game that kind of run at you. Similar to DuckTales, but I think the enemy sprites in Chip and Dale are so much bigger. (laughs) And the hitbox of the player character is ridiculous. Some of the hits I took, I thought, wow, that was cheap, you know? I don't know if you agree with that, but I had my troubles with Chip and Dale. I had to actually do some Game Genie codes to actually finish the game. Yeah, like you said, I think the sprites are bigger than they are in some of the other games, and it makes for you getting hit quite a bit. But I think one thing the game does really well, it offers up a lot of extra men, as does the Little Mermaid, which we'll talk about later. The main mechanic for attacking in this game, you know, you can't jump on anybody or touch anybody, but your main mechanic for defense is to pick up items, and you can throw those forward, backwards, or straight up in the air which is Mm -hmm. uh, a nice mechanic that you don't see in a lot of games. But it's kind of one of these strange anomalies where it's a game where you don't have any weapons, but that you pick up each weapon that you use. Yeah, absolutely. It's even used in the boss battles. Mm -hmm. Every boss battle comes with this red ball that you have to use (laughs) to throw at the boss and make sure that it doesn't fall on your head when it's coming back down. That's right. Which, even though I hated it when it happened, it has the cutest sprite animation when they get hit in the head with the ball. They're just kind (laughs) of... I don't know what you'd say, dazed or drowsy from it. It's very (laughs) cute and funny. Yeah, it causes no damage. It only just stuns you for a bit where you could actually take damage if you were hit by an enemy or an enemy projectile. Yes. So lastly, let's just talk about the game playing The Little Mermaid. As I stated earlier, this is actually in the form of a shoot-em-up. Your sprite is Ariel from The Little Mermaid. But being in water, she floats in the water the way a spaceship would fly on the screen in a shoot 'em up gameplay-wise. This is a very interesting way that they chose to develop this game. You have like a tail swipe that is upgradable. It's complicated but simple, right? So you have this tail swipe where you hit the enemies, it turns them into a bubble, then you can grab them and throw them. And then there's these shells that you have to use to open chests that give you upgrades to your tail swipe. So distance Mm -hmm. and power. And then there's different forms of it. So I had a little bit of confusion when I started this game, actually, because I didn't really understand what the hell I was supposed to do with these shells and everything. But talking to some of you guys on the forums and just figuring out what to do, it's actually a pretty cool system once you get into it. And again, this one has boss battles too. 
We should mention all three of these games, you have life bars. So there's no one-hit kills. In DuckTales, you start with three-hit thing that is very actually generous. Like what actually does damage to you sometimes doesn't take any of your life off, which I found interesting. And then in Chippendale and Little Mermaid, I believe you have five hearts in both of those games. So you lose a life when you lose all your hearts. So you can take a few hits and... That is good. (laughs) Yeah. And just to mention this about DuckTales, you do start off with three life bars, but you can gain an extra two throughout the game. They're just hidden. Mm -hmm. One is hidden in Transylvania, and the other is hidden in the Himalayas. So you can upgrade your life bar in that game as well. Nice. The Little Mermaid has, as I mentioned, a mechanic where you can do the tail swipe at an enemy and it encases them in a bubble that you have to throw. These are used in, I believe, all of the boss battles. Again, just very unique. I think this is a strong suit, Rich. You probably agree with me with all three of these games is the boss battles. And I especially like the ones in The Little Mermaid, especially when I figured out what to do. (laughs) When I got to the first boss, which is the shark, I just ran up to him and started tail swiping his face. And I'm like, man, how many hits does this guy take? I must have hit him a (laughs) hundred times. And then I finally realized what you have to do. Again, going into this game blind can be a little confusing, but once you figure it out, it's very rewarding. Yeah, it kind of took me back when you mentioned the Little Mermaid being like a shooter. Because I I was trying to figure out how I would classify this game, you know? It's got platforming elements to it, so it's sort of a platformer, but there's no jumping, there's no platforms. I think you kind of nailed it. It is kind of a shooter in that sense where you're going through the game, you're shooting things. Like you mentioned at first, you have the tail swipe. And the tail swipe, you have to hit enemies twice at the beginning of the game to put them in a bubble. Mm. But if you unlock these chests, like either using a seashell or later, if your tail is powered up enough, you can hit these barrels and make them roll and that will hit chests and open them up as well. So the two things that get powered up basically are the power of the bubbles and the length with which they go across the screen. It's interesting in the fact that you said that this is like a shooter and it reminds you of a shooter in the sense that when you get hit, these talents can diminish. You don't always keep these talents at full power. They actually degrade when you get hit, as they do in a lot of scrolling shmups that you might play. So it is interesting to think about that, but I don't know. It's hard for me to say that this game is a shooter in the sense of being like a shmup, but at the same time, I think you make a good point on that, and you're right. Yeah, and you actually just touched on a major point, is that it doesn't auto scroll like a traditional shoot 'em up. So that is one thing where it differentiates itself and it's not a pure like Gradius style shooter. You know what I mean? Uh, yep. Definitely. That's a good point to make. You control the flow of the screen. So, and to bounce off of that, you even have a button that makes you swim faster and you can swim through the entire game and do the boss battles. Yeah. That is an option, you know, and that's something else that makes this game uh, very unique. Definitely. But let me ask you, Sean, how did you feel about the controls in all the games? Did you feel like they were pretty fluid or uh, did you have issues with control in either of the games? 
I didn't have too many issues. I got to say, like DuckTales, thank goodness, that game's like still kind of in my muscle memory. Yeah, like I, yeah. I know some people actually don't like the pogo mechanic, but I was just like, oh man, I, I remember this. I love this. It's like riding a bike, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I liked the controls for the Little Mermaid, and I did use the speed button a lot to dash past enemies so to speak or avoid hazards or whatnot with chip and dale i just found that game to be really hard and i know you said on the forum like it's not that hard you could beat it i don't know why it wasn't so much a control issue but mm-hmm. this gets more into like different topics but with chip and dale i had a hard time knowing what was actually a platform to jump onto a lot of yeah, times it's true yeah and the enemies just come flying at you a lot of times, and the knockback is very harsh in that game. So, yes, it is. yeah, it led to a lot of frustrations, but I wouldn't necessarily blame it on the controls themselves. Yeah, what about you? Yeah, I think with Chippendale in particular, one of the things that you learn as you play that game is, like I mentioned before, you don't have a weapon, so you really always need to keep a box in hand or something in hand, apple, whatever the weapon item might be. So that's mm-hmm. just kind of a good rule of thumb for that game. DuckTales, like you said, just fluid, like riding a bike. Love the pogo mechanic. I just think it's what makes the game so special and why people might even put it in their top 10 as far as NES games are concerned. I know that Mr. Stubbs, one of our participants who plays all of our games, he had a bit of an issue beating DuckTales, but it seemed like he beat Rescue Rangers and Little Mermaid quickly and handily. Yeah. I think a part of the reason for that is, is because you and I played the game when we were younger. He did not. And so we're very familiar with that pogo mechanic. Like most games, if you don't have the manual for a game, then you're not going to know how to do that pogo mechanic because my neighbor, Game Ruler's No Account Dad, mentioned to me... <laughs> We had a lot of trouble with DuckTales because we did not have the manual and we did not know about the pogo mechanic until we watched a video online. So, yeah, I mean, it would make sense that people would have issue with that game. But I think once you figure that out and get the hang of, you know, the height that you can go with that and other ways in which you can use the cane, I think the game becomes a lot easier and more friendly. Little Mermaid, as far as the controls are concerned, I got to tell you. When I would get through playing that game, my hands would hurt so bad. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, I think it's because the back and forth is kind of fidgety. It's not as smooth as like DuckTales or Rescue Rangers. The water element as well makes the controls a little tougher, you know, which it should. You want to have that feeling that you are in water as you're playing the game. And Mm -hmm. I think the game definitely accomplishes that, but... For me, it was just very frustrating. Like I said, it it made my hands hurt really bad. I don't know why, because the other two games didn't. Very interesting. All right. You want to get into some graphics and environments? Sure. So this is something that, (laughs) as I'm looking at our topics that we usually go through, I feel like I'm going to say DuckTales knocked it out of the park, and then the other ones were just kind of... Not as good. So as far as graphics go, I feel like the environments in DuckTales are very varied, and they are in Chip and Dale also, but with DuckTales, the levels are so interesting, and they go through something that a lot of 
you know, games from back then had, like, they have an ice level, they have a jungle-type level. Mm-hmm. You go to the moon, you go to Transylvania. But I just think the environments and also the source material-type graphics, so, like, the characters, the vehicles, and stuff like that, were so well done and faithful to the actual show. Yeah. At the time, even, I remember, like, this is a really good adaptation from that standpoint. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Whereas I feel with Chippendale Rescue Rangers, the graphics aren't quite as detailed. They're not quite as interesting. The environments are varied, and there's some cool ideas in there, Mm -hmm. but they just don't pop off the screen the way DuckTales does. And the same with Little Mermaid. I think Little Mermaid was probably easier on the eyes than Chip and Dale, but I think that's because of the color palette. Like, there's a lot of purple and blue and light green, like, ocean-y colors, you know, in The Little Mermaid because of the source material. So I think it was easier on the eyes, but I wouldn't say the graphics were anything to write home about. That's kind of where I'm at with these environments and graphics. What about you, Rich? Yeah, I agree. I really like DuckTales because of the interesting variation in environments. And you mentioned before, like the snow level, how you can't pogo in the snow. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Our uh, participant game ruler actually posted on the forums and said, it's kind of odd that you're on the moon and there's no floaty mechanic. And I agree with that. That's true. If you're on the moon, you should be kind of floating around because of gravity, right? Or at least Scrooge McDuck should be wearing a space helmet. (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i think you made a really good point when you said that ducktales feels like you're playing an episode of the tv show because you've Mm -hmm. got all these characters it feels like an adventure you're going against flint harp glom gold and i know that rescue rangers you've got that primary villain fat cat but it just seems like all the other characters that were on the show are almost secondary and you only play as one of the main characters. Right. So it feels like it's just the game created around the show and not for the show, like DuckTales was. Same with The Little Mermaid. I mean, other than The Little Mermaid and Ursula and her eels, I think it's Flotsam and Jetsam were their names. Hmm. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's part of the movie. It actually plays off as a sequel to the movie. If you go through the story, what's happened is that Ariel is with Eric. Ursula has come back and she's possessed all the fish in the sea. So you have to go battle her. And then at the end of it, you can't become human again. But King Triton magically, once again, makes you human. So it's almost like a sequel. But there's not all those great characters that there were in the movie, except in some of the video cut scenes, uh, which, you know, you get her friend Flounder and I believe Sebastian the Crab might be in a few of those. But in terms of the characters and how the environments work with the game, I definitely think the edge goes to DuckTales in that regard. I mentioned before that the environments in these games for Chippendale Rescue Rangers and for Little Mermaid, they're more linear Whereas in DuckTales, you've got a lot more autonomy. The environments are not linear. You can backtrack to areas which you can't do in the other two games. They're just kind of forward scrolling. But one of the things that you mentioned about the environment in Chippendales is that you can't always tell what you can jump on. That's a very valid complaint, and I had problems with that 
you know, when I was playing it when I was younger, of course, now I'm, I can just fly through Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. I mean, it just feels natural to me. There's a lot of muscle memory still there. So I don't have any problems with that. But one of the things I will say that I do like about Chippendale Rescue Rangers environments is that it's like the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yes, yes. <laughs> you're playing in these levels where you're small and everything else is bigger, which in the grand scheme of things doesn't make a lot of sense because a chipmunk is bigger than a lot of the things on the levels. <laughs> but it's still kind of cool, you know? I still like that. The environments are interesting to me in that way, uh, whereas you're playing something uh, you know, much smaller in a bigger world. Very good point. And you bring up another thing I wanted to briefly touch on is that while in DuckTales, everything seems to be really integrated into the gameplay and into the levels in Chippendale and Little Mermaid, there are cutscenes in between the levels. And one of the things that's unique about Chippendale is that what is the character? Is it Gidget or Gadget? The, the Gadget. One, it's Gadget. Okay. Gadget will give you tips on the levels that will come in handy. She'll say in, you know, in area F, watch out for the fan. Or you have to do the valves to, I forget what it was, but she actually will kind of hint to you about mechanics that are upcoming in the levels, which is actually pretty useful. So I thought that was kind of a cool tidbit that Chippendale had going for it. Yeah, and I'll say this, the uh, remastered version of DuckTales has a little more fan service in it oh, yeah. than the other yeah. DuckTales games. So there are some sort of cutscenes in that as well, which, you know, wasn't in the original game, but it does sort of mimic the cutscenes in Little Mermaid and Chippendales. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I didn't like about the remake because DuckTales on NES is just such a pure experience from a gameplay standpoint that I actually wasn't in love with all the cutscenes and dialogue they added to the remaster. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you that, but I'm not a big fan of the cutscenes because they slow down the gameplay. And I think that's what you're speaking to. But what I do like is the fan service that's in the remaster where they got all the original voice actors to do the yeah, scenes. Yeah, you're right. I think that's really cool. That's totally fair. Well, speaking of that, let's get into the sounds and the music. And once again, Rich, come on, man. The music in DuckTales <laughs> is absolutely legendary. <laughs> it is. As far as, again, like... Top 10 NES soundtracks, you're going to find DuckTales in most of those lists. Yeah, why is this not out on vinyl yet? Uh, yeah, I would just have a physical copy of the original chip music to listen to. It's that good. And by comparison, the other games are fine. And they have their chiptune versions of their respective theme songs, which are great. And with yep. Little Mermaid, a bunch of different songs from the movie that you know and love. But yeah, DuckTales just has not only the theme song, which is, again, legendary, but a lot of original compositions that just to this day are just beautiful and amazingly well done. Yeah, I agree. Um, I love the music in DuckTales because it's very familiar to me, as well as Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I love the music in that, too. I mean, it's just catchy and fun tunes. It feels quirky and cartoony. I think it just really fits the games really well. And, you know, same with Little Mermaid. The music in that's very good, too. So I, I would give all three games very high marks in the music category. 
the sounds in all the games are a lot of fun. Yeah. They did good with sound design. One of my favorites is when you're Scrooge McDuck and you hit a rock that won't move. Yes. And it goes, <laughs> and then your eyes sort of shift too. I think that's so awesome. But yeah, it's like I said, it's just kind of fun and cartoony sounds. They don't mimic real life sounds as uh, most games would, but I think that's what gives them so much appeal. So before we go into our final thoughts, what were some of your favorite boss battles from any of the three games? Wow, that's a good question. I would have to say for DuckTales, I really like the Magicka Dispel battle, but I also like the one with Count Duckula, where you have to jump on the bats and land on him. Mm-hmm. I think the toughest one might be the moon. The rat on the moon can vary up his patterns a bit where some of the other boss battles are pretty straightforward. Chippendale's Rescue Rangers? I gotta be honest, man. It feels like every battle in that game is about the same because the mechanic is always the same, you know, using the ball. Yeah. I like the centipede fight because I like when you hit the centipede, it breaks into different pieces and you have to be standing in the right place to dodge it. So I would probably say that's one of my favorite fights. And then with the Little Mermaid, I would probably go with the final boss battle in that. I really like that final boss battle against Ursula. I love the big, beautiful sprite of her and having to uh, put bubbles around the fish and throw them at her while at the same time trying to avoid throwing them into other fish. It can get a little frantic at times, but yeah, I think that's a fun battle. And I think we should mention that with Little Mermaid, there are five stages And so you fight Ursula at the end of the fifth stage, but then you also have to fight her again as an additional boss battle. Yeah, two-stage boss. Chippendale is the same way. In -hmm. fact, the Fat Cat final boss of Chippendale was one of my favorites. I liked the Eels boss in Little Mermaid. I think it was level two. And I enjoyed the Abominable Snowman and DuckTales. These games have a lot of great boss battles, and it's definitely one of the highlights in all three of the games. All right, well, let's get into our final thoughts on this group of titles here. I guess I'll go first since I have a little bit less experience with these, and ranking them is going to be no surprise. I would put DuckTales way, way, way at the top, followed by Little Mermaid, and with Chippendale at the bottom. Like I said, DuckTales is kind of like in my DNA as one of these games that I played the ever-loving hell out of when I was a youngster. And it's a game that I cherish and would highly recommend to anybody. Little Mermaid and Chippendale being new to me, 
I actually enjoyed Little Mermaid quite a bit, especially once I got a hang of the mechanics and realized what the heck I was supposed to do. Again, I found the color palette very pleasing to the eyes. I liked the boss battles with the mechanic of having to use the smaller enemies that the boss threw at you to shoot them back at each boss. And like you said, I would agree completely that the final boss battle in Little Mermaid was pretty awesome. And the sprite of Ursula just basically takes up the whole screen is really well done. With Chippendale, like I said, I had a lot of troubles with this game. The knockback was pretty punishing. The enemies were really aggressive, it seemed like. And I had some issues with the platforming. So... Getting through the game, I still thought it was very interesting. I, I liked all the boss battles and the music and the presentation and everything of it. It was just my least favorite out of the three. So yeah, this was a fun playthrough for me. It was cool to revisit some NES titles. I don't play a lot of NES anymore, so it was really cool to play a game I'm super familiar with and two that I'm not familiar with at all. So I appreciate you choosing these games for us. And I overall enjoyed this group of games. So that's it for me. What are some of your final thoughts on these three? Yeah, I'll just start out by echoing what you said. I really had a great time playing all three of these games. I think the graphics and the sprite work in all three games is just beautiful. It's stunning, especially on some of the bigger bosses like Fat Cat looks really awesome. Ursula looks really awesome. And, you know, I think all the stuff in DuckTales looks great, too. Lots of familiar characters that are done up in 8-bit. It's just quite amazing. As far as ranking these, I have to agree with you. DuckTales is a classic. The mechanics in DuckTales are phenomenal. And I think some of the exploration in that game as well are highly influential on other games. And one in particular that came to mind was a game that didn't actually make it over here, but it was actually in Japan and there was actually a PAL copy of it. This is a very expensive game, so I would suggest if you want to play it, and yes, you should play it, it's a game called Mr. Gimmick. I'm sure you've probably heard of this game, Sean. Yeah. But it came out in 1992, and you can actually see that the developers of Mr. Gimmick could have been influenced in some ways by DuckTales. There's just something about the mechanics and the platforming, and then also the secret areas that are inherent throughout the game. But um, DuckTales would be my number one. Number two, I would put Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. I think this is a lot of nostalgia talking, of course, but I really, really love that game. I think it's up there with DuckTales, but DuckTales just edges it out. Biggest issue I have with Little Mermaid is just the controls. They're just a little bit janky, in my opinion, and... Like I said before, my hands really were aching after playing that game each time. I just kind of felt like I had to dig into the controller to get her to do what I wanted her to do. But all in all, I thought it was a wonderful month. I enjoyed it. I beat all of these games in two nights. Nice. So it was nice to have a little bit of a break from some of the more intense playthroughs that we have. So yeah, that was awesome. So... Speaking of intense playthroughs, <laughs> should we get into our upcoming game, Sean? Yeah, I can tell you the March game is not very intense, but I'll let you announce it before I elaborate on why I feel that way. All right. So our game that we're playing in March is Eternal Eyes on the PlayStation 1, probably best known for having one of the most notoriously ugly and most 
unrelevant covers to a game ever. It, it's so funny, like growing up playing Atari 2600 games, they would have these fantastic watercolor painted covers that would make me really want to play a game that I knew is going to be completely shitty looking. But right. with Eternal Eyes, it's a shitty cover that's trying to get me to play a game so i don't really understand it but yeah this is a um an rpg it's presented in an isometric style and it has a monster gathering mechanic similar to pokemon that is all correct and i actually have started playing this game so i played the first two chapters of the game over this weekend it is a strategy rpg i didn't realize that until i started playing it so that's pretty cool and I also made the mistake of reading some reviews of this game, and <laughs> a lot of people don't take kindly to it, but That's I will true. say I'm enjoying it so far, and the game is known as being quite easy, but I will say it's harder than Rhapsody and Musical Adventure, so <laughs> that, that may be the easiest game of all time, and the, certainly one of the easiest games we've ever played for a playthrough, uh, but this is a step above that, and I would say just take this journey with us. We're trying something different here, playing this obscure game on the PS1, and we picked it partially also because for an RPG on the PS1, it goes for about 10 bucks, which is unheard of for that kind of genre and that console. So give it a shot. The presentation of the game is a lot like a Sega Saturn game. It's very anime. The camera moves around a lot. It really reminds me of something that would be on the Sega Saturn. It's, it's pretty cool. And then in April, we're going to play a game called Transistor. This is developed by Supergiant Games. I've only ever played Bastion by them, mm -hmm. and I didn't love that game as much as some people do, but I liked it enough that I'm willing to give another one of their games a shot, and we're going to go with Transistor. Now, Rich, this game caught your eye, and you selected it. What was it about this game that made you want to play it for a playthrough? Uh, because I like Bastion. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I didn't realize you had played Bastion. That's funny. Yeah, I picked it up several months ago. I went to check to see what other games the studio made, and I watched a trailer for Transistor, and it really caught my eye and contacted you to see if it's something you might be interested in playing. Perfect. Well, longtime subscribers of PlayStation Plus, you might want to look through your download queue because that's how I discovered that I have access to this game is once upon a time it was on PlayStation Plus. So if you have that, check your download queue because you might already have access to the game.
is going to do it for another episode. Thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to our participants. In March, we are looking at a bargain bin title from the original PlayStation. Eternal Eyes is a little known strategy RPG with horrible cover art, but unlike a lot of RPGs for the system, it can be had for only a few dollars. There's no reason not to dive in with us. So be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join this playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blame